Welcome to this episode of the 9420 podcast, where we talk about the music that we love and the industry that we tolerate. Welcome to this episode of the 9420 Podcast. That was Couldn't He Just Love Her by our one and only Carl Alaco. Hi, Carl and Greg. How are you doing? Hello, Monty and Marie. (laughs) (laughs) I love our new names, Monty and Marie and Carlo. No, I'm Ricky. I'm Ricky. (laughs) Oh, Ricky, that's right. Yeah, he reminded me of that. I said, hey, Carlo, and he reminded me it's Ricky. Hey, I love that track, Carl. I, I hadn't heard that in a long, long time. Did you do more than one recording of that? No, that was it. I, it? I tell you how that came about. So Dreamer was breaking up in around, around 81. 
we were in the studio and I had this, this is like shades of Charlie dogs, what this is. Cause like, right. dreamer was this pop band, you know, with twangy guitars and, and we never did anything with acoustic guitar. Right. So I played this track. I was in the studio. The drummer didn't show up. This, the band was breaking up. So, yeah, so have, there's a little 808 action. In exactly. There. So what happened is I just recorded this little track, you know, this um, acoustic thing I was working on and uh, the guitar players happened to be there. So he played that lead, this messy track that never became anything. It never went anywhere, this song. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It's uh, even the vocal quality. Uh, it reminds me of something that Elvis Costello would have done in the get happy period. You know, it's really cool. I really like it. The funny thing is, though, about that track, like as I'm listening to it, I'm like, it's so retro that it could be on radio today. Like, that's just to me, I'm like, all right, I can, I can listen to this in the car driving down the road. Like, it's something that I think people of the day will enjoy, too. All things come around again. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, so I got a couple of bones to pick. Oh. I got I got bones to pick, too. You want to so, start? No, you start, because your bones probably are better none. than my bones. I'm very zen this no, week. No, you're boneless. I have none. No bones. <laughs> no bones. <laughs> oh, so it's like, what is that TikTok dog? Doug, no bones or bones? Like, if he has bones or no bones. <laughs> well, my, my first thing is a good bone. Let me preface this with I am anti-biopic. I think they're they're ridiculous. You know, even the Queen one, which everyone heralded as being great and all. To me, yeah. I think the problem with biopics today is like I could see doing a, a biopic of, of um let's say Alexander Graham Bell or Abraham Lincoln, someone we never known and we don't know about it. But today, right. because of technology, why do I need to see some actor do a make believe version of Freddie Mercury at, at Live Aid when I can just Google Live Aid and see Freddie Mercury do it? <laughs> I'll just watch documentary for Footage, right, right. Uh, I'd rather see the actual thing because it's always better than his. his and they always anyway. get the hair wrong. Yeah, it's always these hokey wigs. Anyway, <laughs> so with that said, did you watch Elvis? I watched Elvis. It's and so good. This is my little critique. As a movie, I think it it, it just fluffs over certain aspects. You know, then it could have I, been about forty five minutes shorter, for sure. Another thing too, maybe this do I don't I don't know how Tom Parker talked, but I thought. um Tom Hanks bothered me throughout the whole movie. That, but that's the whole point of that character, though. I feel like it's supposed to bother you. Because I, immediately I was like, I don't like you. He did not have that accent. Uh, oh, no. I, so, I, yeah, the, 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 that just bugged me. But what what was great, that yeah. Austin Butler kid. He was. He got his moves down. Like, he, he did the singer special. It was perfect. It was great. I hate this. It was, like, amazing. I, I thought, you know, and the thing that's hard about this, too, it's like Freddie Mercury's not so much in the mainstream eye as, as, as someone like Elvis. Elvis, everybody knows Elvis. And this kid was smart. He didn't like do all the stereotypical lip stuff and all the, like the ridiculous things. He just, it just more embodied him. And it was just, I thought it was great. If he doesn't win an Oscar for this, but if, you know who's probably going to get the Oscar that? Oh, uh, Brandon Fraser. Brandon Fraser is probably going to get the Oscar this year, but but I thought he was great. So I haven't seen it yet, so I have very little to contribute you other sh- than to you say should. that my my cousins for their entire adult life and most of their childhood have been Elvis obsessed, and they saw the movie and they thought it was a spiritual experience. I mean, they thought it was that good. Here's the thing: I think they could have not included so much of Colonel Parker in it. Like Colonel, I think they they gave him way too much of a storyline, but I understand why there needed to be him in in it. 
personally, any time that Austin Butler was in there and, and the scenes and how he did, I could have just in an entire movie of him just singing in different instances great. and progressing his career. I thought that that probably would have been a little bit better. I don't know where they got this kid from. I know he did a couple of TV shows prior to this, but he trained a year and a half for this mm-hmm. before they shot. But I think it paid off. But that's that. So, I, so what's your so bad recommend- bone for the week then, since this was your good bone? Well, not a bad bone, but but you know, anyone see the Taylor Hawkins memorial thing? No, I I, 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 I read about it, but I didn't I didn't, read, I didn't see well, it. I watched a bunch of one. I you know, I guess it shows the power of Dave Grohl because Taylor Hawkins. You know, come on, like I see a Freddie Mercury memorial, I could see a David Bowie memorial, but. Come on, Taylor Hawkins Memorial. Like he, he, I, I know he's a nice guy and all, but come on. Anyway, two things I got from this. For one, Wolfgang Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen's son, did like a, a Van Halen cover. The kid plays guitar as good as his father. <laughs> it was amazing. And then Taylor Hawkins' son played drums with the Foo Fighters on this song Evermore, and it was just, it was great. So the kids are taking over, man. You know, so well, the kids are going to be what helps them continue into like the next fifty years. I like guess. the Foo Fighters just become the kids of the original Foo Fighters. But, 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 but my one bone, and here I go again, Paul McCartney. He comes out and does a song right with Christy Hine, who was pretty great too, by the way. She, with the Pretenders, she did uh, "Brass in Pocket," something great. And she's like sixty something, but she's you know no, anyway. she's seventy one today. Oh really? Well, she sounded great. It's amazing. She looked kind of cool yeah. too. But yeah. so they come out, and of all the songs he chooses to do, McCartney chooses to do. He comes out and says, "I'm going to do a song that I've never ever done live." Ever. Ebony and Ivory. No, no. Oh Darling, or for <laughs> Abbey Road. Now, Oh Darling, I think is a great song, and it's like it's one of his best vocals ever. And the way he goes that middle part, when I told you, like, you know, it's like this amazing vocal and it was horrendous. Cause he, you yeah. said, you said he cannot do the, what he did. He goes like his, it was his, his hardest song to sing. And it was scary. I'm sorry. What's yeah. he doing? Is he trying to kill yeah, the legend? I, I saw something recently with Primus and with Rush and, Getty Lee's vocal was not good. He he's not singing like he sang. Well, five come years on, the ago guy's either. seventy years old, and and that, that he's just singing the stratosphere. That rush stuff. These guys, I mean, you know, it's like why don't they have enough self awareness to know that they're not performing and it's too pitchy? Because I bet there are people out there that keep telling them, "Oh, it's you still making money off of this. You sound great. Keep going." Yeah, but you would think that you didn't. You didn't become a millionaire or, uh, you know, a, a, a billionaire uh, right. with your creative talents and not being sensitive to when you got it and when you ain't. I mean, they know when they're in the pocket, I think. Maybe I could be wrong. I have two words for all these rock stars. Joe DiMaggio. Yeah. Joe DiMaggio yeah. knew when to step down. He wasn't, yeah. he wasn't playing ball the same. It's over. I'm done. Step down. You know, I mean, I think if you became famous in the 2000s, if you became famous like 20 years ago, there's probably some consolation in the idea that you might have made a nice chunk of change, right? Mm -hmm. Right. The people that became ultra famous in the 60s, and I can think of several off the top of my head, the monkeys being uh, one of them. We talk about the monkeys here all the time. You're talking about 40 or 50 years, you can spend a good chunk of money and have nothing. I was recently 
reading an article about somebody who, Nicole, you won't remember this name, but this guy was as hot as anybody on the planet in the 60s. His name was Bobby Sherman. All right. Bobby Sherman made records. He ended up being an emergency medical technician. He was an EMT somewhere in the Midwest. And that's what he does for a living. So he's going and, you know, you know, transporting bodies out of the um, nursing home. And people don't recognize that he once was a teen hotter than anybody on the planet. Well, I mean, and we've talked about it, too. Like they're like, especially with the age of social media and stuff like that, it's almost like if you're in your 15 minutes of fame right now, you can't do anything else. But if you wait five years and you don't have anything else coming out, you can go and be an EMT or own your own, you know, barista coffee bar or whatnot. And people probably won't recognize you. But because of those early 2000 bands, like how iconic they are, they really can't do anything else without getting that recognition of, oh my gosh, it's, you know, Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys, or it's Britney Spears, or it's Christina Aguilera. Uh, Vanilla Ice, Vanilla Ice, like the last five or 10 years has been like a contractor or Mm -hmm. something or designer or something. Anyway, so what's what's your... um bone i guess this for this or do you week? want to get to the artist and then get to your bone how do you want to do it um <laughs> how long is your bone <laughs> my, my, my bone will take about three minutes maybe okay. tops. very personal question <laughs> um so this weekend i actually went to my first concert in person since covid started at the ryman my little brother Ooh, yeah. surprised me with um a concert there to a indie folk band called watch house um, so I was very Ooh. excited to go see them because they just have a very eclectic sound. And we didn't know who the opening act was, nor did we realize that they were also recording the show for their radio and all that fun stuff. And we get there and we sit down and both of us were thinking we wouldn't like the opening band because we really, really, really were interested in seeing Watch House, which was the main act. Right. And this hokey knee slapping band comes on called foghorn string band i love them more than the main band like for the that's great and i was thinking of greg the whole time just because of how eclectic in their sound and the fact that they got this cello and the mandolin and the fiddle going and we were talking about fiddles last week and but one it was so 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 good but like also it made me realize like I actually would love to go to more concerts like this. Like if I knew that I was really going to enjoy it and it was that type of setting at the Ryman where it's a little bit more intimate and um, you really can like see everything and kind of fall in love with music again, I would go to it. I don't think I would go to a big sold out stadium concert anymore where it's like 35,000 people like that to me just does not appeal. And it was an eye opening aspect for me. See, for me, like I I see, I have the beacon right down the block, you know, which is very similar. It's, it's, It's like the New York equivalency of the Ryman. It's like, you know, 3,000 right. seaters. Mm-hmm. And right. I just can't afford the tickets, man. They're like, they're 175 just for just to get in the door. So I, Because there aren't enough seats <laughs> to cover. You yeah, know, so, yeah, I, so I, like, I you know, I, to me, it's not, you know, I could afford, but I, I don't feel like spending 200 bucks to see, you know, Jackson Brown for, you know, I don't care that much, you know. That's what, the Ryman's actually pretty cost effective. I think they're maybe like 35, 40 bucks a ticket. Like, they're not really? terrible. Yeah. How do they get away with that? I don't know. 
I mean, it, it may also be because Watch House isn't necessarily like a Mirren Morris or something that's going to draw people in that could be a high dollar ticket. They're just trying to fill the seats, if that makes sense. But I am fascinated with these shows that are drawing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. It's just insane. And it's it's like there was this pent up kind of demand for live music that people are just going crazy. I mean, people, I think people are spending thousands of dollars this summer to see music in ways that they've never seen it before. Especially the younger generation. I think they're just so starved for like, I don't know if it's attention or if it's like just to interaction, like be interaction you know, but like they will choose yeah. that over going on like vacation. I think it's actually a, an indication of where the industry has moved. I mean, I think that if you pay to see a band today in a reasonably large venue, you're paying hundreds of dollars because they're getting, they're extracting what you would have paid for four records and two t-shirts and a CD. You know, they're, they're getting all the physical product money out of you for you to go and sit and listen to the band for two hours. That's basically <laughs> I blame global warming. <laughs> it's an interesting blame. <laughs> I blame global warming. I, I think it's, you know, if gas prices were a little lower, I, I, bl I blame Obama. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so, well, well, that's good. I'm glad you got out. But should we get to actually to, like, hear a song from the band that we actually have for this week, maybe get to know them a little bit? I think it's a duo, though, right? It's a duo. Yeah, it's a duo. The duo is called Madison Station. They are brand spanking new. This is their first single that we're featuring, and they are an Aristo Media artist. So we're going to learn a little bit about Aristo Media before we play their first and latest single, Back in the Day. This episode features an artist managed by Aristo Media. The Aristo Media Group encompasses a broad range of services dedicated to offering the entertainment industry innovative, integrated marketing strategies. Aristo Media's distinct advantage is housing entertainment publicity and PR, digital marketing, video marketing, radio promotion, club marketing, and consulting all under one roof. The Aristo Media Group also epitomizes synergy. Together, the divisions combine talents to maximize client exposure through digital, print, radio, television, online, and video outlets. To learn more, go to aristomedia.com. Again, that is aristomedia.com. the last day of school windows down music up doing donuts in our trucks once the clock struck three in the afternoon i can still remember the way she looked back at me jenny lynn and her friends and a circle shakes her head and says boys only think of one thing Sitting on the tailgate outside of McDonald's 
I think they should t- they should you know get in touch with Mickey D's man and see if they can get some kind of that's sponsorship or that, like maybe detailed out their truck that they have. <laughs> that's a high energy track. Now, Carl, did you understand the Sundrop reference? You no. know what that is? No, it's a soda. Sundrop is a it's a it's a uh, soft drink. Yeah, uh, or as they say around here, cold drink. It's a cold drink that uh, people down south drink it's uh high in fructose and uh caffeine i'll tell you the first time i came to nashville i'll show my new yorkness or whatever but i think i was still eating meat i ordered the burger on the vegetables it had um corn spinach macaroni and cheese (laughs) (laughs) they're vegetable that makes a lot of sense i'm going what (laughs) and then i remember like and they i said and they everyone got i never heard of sweet tea or tea sweet tea right right, but i got a diet coke right and they brought me a glass that i could have put my foot in basically (laughs) it was so big and i literally like maybe i took like Two sips, and she was back filling up again. It was like this endless vat of Diet Coke, man. There you go. Well, do you want to get to know the duo that is Madison Station? We spoke to both of them, actually. We spoke to both of them, and they both answered our questions of the week. We get double the answers this week. Well, we spoke. There's two of them. There's Craig and there's Lance. Yep. I think Craig is the guitarist and then Lance is the, is the lead singer. Mm-hmm. All right. So the first question we asked them is to tell us a little bit about themselves. We'll go Craig first, then Lance. Okay. okay? Hey, I'm Craig Anderson with Madison Station. I play guitar, uh, sing harmonies, songwriter, producer, kind of man about town, do a lot of different things, been been doing this a long time. And uh, I, uh, yeah, I guess I just keep on trucking. 
Uh, my name is Lance, and I am the lead singer for Madison Station. And um, a little about myself, I, uh, I grew up in a singing family. My dad sang in a gospel quartet, so that's, that was sort of my singing background growing up around Southern gospel music. And um, uh, when I got into to college, I uh, started singing out in public a little more. And, um, and then when I graduated college, I moved to Nashville. First time I ever sang on a stage that was not inside a church uh, was at Legends Corner, actually. A buddy of mine got me up on, on stage uh, to sing, uh, I think it was Garth Brooks's uh, Friends in Low Places, actually. And I was hooked. Uh, I've been hooked ever since. After that, I, I began singing uh, various cover bands and uh, just, you know, singing where I could, when I could. And then um, a few years ago, Craig approached me. We had a mutual friend. He was looking for a singer. Uh, he was ready to start a new project after the Heartland Run. And uh, I was happy to, to hop on board. And, uh, and we've been recording music and can't wait to see what's in store. Okay. I don't know why, but they remind me of my, when I hear these guys talk, I feel like I'm watching my show Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> they're, very, they're very smooth country country voices. Hey, Carl, that place we ate was called The Cooker. Right. The, the, you're right. You're right. The Cooker. <laughs> you're totally right. I remember. Uh, I can't believe I remembered it. <laughs> very cool. It's good to, good to hear from these guys. Um, I think that they've... Uh, They've got that kind of throwback, uh, high energy country sound. Should be good. Well, and they it sound good stuff. too, which you can't you can't say that yep. for a lot of people nowadays. Yep. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so the second question that we ask them is to tell us what music artists have influenced their career so far. Man, I guess like a lot of people, uh, I've been influenced by a lot of different genres of music and a lot of different musicians. Uh, I kind of kind of grew up in that m- mid to late 80s and, and early 90s and uh, grew up with a lot of the uh, my parents' uh, uh, music from the 60s, rock rock music and, and R&B, Motown. I love all the country acts of the 90s. I mean, I was, I was 18 years old when Nirvana came out with Smells Like Teen Spirit, so I grew up with all the, all the metal bands and then all the grunge bands, and, and I still listen to all that stuff today. I, I will listen to all my old country stuff. I mean, my, my son is named cash for goodness sake. So, uh, Lord knows I love all that stuff, but I still listen to all my, all my Motley and all my rock stuff as well. So a lot of different stuff. Well, as a kid, my mom listened to oldies. And, um, so I was listening to fifties and sixties music a lot as a, as a child. And, uh, I really enjoyed the old soul and R and B Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, Stevie Wonder, all those guys uh, were my favorites. Uh, still, still are. And then as I got older, I got into rock music uh, throughout the '90s. I became a fan of the alternative scene, and um, my tastes are all over the place. Uh, my dad was in a gospel quartet, so Southern gospel music was was also a mainstay at my house. And Bill Gaither and, and his bands and, and all these other Southern gospel groups were also uh, artists that I that I loved to listen to, and they inspired me. As far as country is concerned, uh, I, I really started getting into it when I was in high school. Uh, Garth Brooks was one of the first to sort of turn me on to, to the country scene. Um, Vince Gill, who I still you know, love to this day, love to hear that guy sing. Uh, Diamond Rio, uh, they, their harmonies, just fantastic, uh, second to none. And uh, all those guys have, have really inspired me over the years. Are there any northern gospel singers? 
I don't know. <laughs> I have, always, that's a great is it, question. Is it always Southern gospel? Is there any gospel up there? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of choir, uh, you know, choir gospel up up east, right? You know, in the northeast. You know. Did we ask him one more thing? We did. We asked them one last question, and the question is, what would you change in the music industry today if you could? And to switch it up, we're going to listen to Lance first, then we'll end it up with Craig. All right. See that how we do that? Uh, if I had to change one thing about the music industry, it would be the, the royalty rates right now with streaming services and all. There's not a very big payout per stream, per download. The riders are suffering. Uh, and then on top of that, it's, it's hurting the writers even more because if you're an artist, in order for you to make money, you're going to have to pretty much write your own songs because that's the only way you're going to be getting a royalty from those downloads or from those streams. So it doesn't make much business sense for the singers not to be writing their stuff. And then in turn, that keeps songwriters out of a job. I mean, because there are plenty of great songwriters out there that aren't performers, per se. You know, they're, not, they're not out there doing their own stuff you know, outside of a writer's round. So it really hurts all the way around uh, with these low rates. And um, yeah, it needs to be changed for sure. I think Nashville still is, uh, at least country music is still songwriter driven. Uh, the problem is that you can't invest in somebody's songwriting career and have them co-write their way into the top 10 uh, because you can't expect a return on what's called the mechanical royalties that you used to be able to expect when we sold physical products. Mm-hmm. So he's right in that regard that streaming does not support songwriting no, and I, music. I, 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 I hear he's right, but I'm just saying it, it adds right. to the problem. So let's, let's hear what Craig had to say no. about that. So this is a tricky one here. Uh, one thing I could change about the music business if I could, I mean, the simple answer is to, to make it more music and less business, right? At a certain level, uh, if you make it to a certain level, it certainly becomes a business. And, uh, and I, I, I am definitely aware of, of that with, with other stuff that I've done in the past. Uh, you know, I think I would, uh, if I had a magic wand, I would make it to where artists have more control of their career. Uh, if you break through and you become superstar, you are uh, you're in good shape. If you never break through at all, it doesn't matter. But if you're in that middle group where you're relying on the labels to do everything for you and you're you're in debt to those guys, it's it's tough because they they kind of own you, and that's the way that the business has been set up for decades now. But uh, I'd, I'd like to make it a little more artist friendly some way. Anyway. In the 90s and in the early 2000s, the the recording engineers took over for the producers uh, and the business development people and the admin people and the lawyers, the legal people, the legal affairs people took over the creative aspects of A&R. It didn't work. Uh, and you would think that there would be a return to giving people more creativity and more flexibility as artists and as writers. Uh, I think what they did instead was they basically just said, it's a free for all here are the keys have at it. Uh, and of course, understanding that not very many people can make it to the middle. Like he was describing, you can't make it to the middle uh, without 
a fair amount of business acumen. That's my opinion. So uh, just today, Cobalt, a major music industry publishing concern, sold. Uh, and they're going to, I guess, restructure. How are they major? Uh, they have assets in play in the billions yeah, but, of but, dollars. But, but, what, but what is their catalog? Hundreds of catalogs. Hundreds of catalogs. Uh, and they also had a model wherein you got to keep your copyright, but we're going to provide you with the services. Now they're starting to own copyrights because they have literally hundreds of people investing major concerns. Here's the point. Here's the point I wanted to make. Do you you want to take a guess how much money they have at their disposal to acquire more music catalogs? Forty-five billion dollars. Forty-five with a B. So they are going to, in effect, own the music industry. I mean, they already own like songs from Stevie Nicks, Phoebe Bridgers, The Lumineers, Paul McCartney, The Foo Fighters. Like they they yep. have a pretty yep. big catalog. And they are continuing to expand and sell and they sell to? recreate they sell to? Uh, a company called Francisco Partners. All I'm saying is that when you have $45 billion with a B to buy music catalogs and to uh, acquire and merge, you're going to end up owning it all. I'm not understanding, but you just told me they just sold. Said, no, they, they announced that they've selected... To in like to invest in the business, so Francisco Partners invested in Cobalt, so that's why they have forty five billion. You don't think Spotify has that much money? Come on. Well, that's funny. That's funny that you should say that because one of the quotes in the article that I read was about a particular person that is involved. There basically were three people involved in the parent or or the initial music publishing offering. And they made this inane quote. Somebody was quoted as saying, you know, uh, he's a real music guy. He understands the music business. Well, you would think if you had a $45 billion pocketbook, you would want somebody that might understand a little bit about the music industry. But the reality of it is that if you've got $45 billion, you don't have to know anything. You just buy it all. And then what rises to the top rises to the top. Yeah, and like anything else, no matter who's ever running these these companies, everyone eventually dies, and it'll be somebody else. So, what's the big and deal? In, in twenty years, they may crash and burn and be bankrupt. Right? So. You know, there was like look at uh, Blockbuster. You know, and uh, but they own it all. AOL, AOL. <laughs> MySpace. So it's kind of impossible to go bankrupt. You no, know, that's that true. They they all fold eventually when the world blows the up. In, in when 20, the world blows up. Cobalt will go down. And in, 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 even in like ten years, Facebook may not even be a thing. Like you never right. know. You never I, know. I, I, yeah, but Facebook's not a licensee. No. And Paul uh, McCartney no. will still be touring. <laughs> <laughs> Ninety-seven, ninety-seven, yeah. singing Penny Lane, yeah. man. <laughs> oh God, that'll be funny, man. Uh, all right, I think it's time for us to get on out of yeah, this episode. Let's make, let's make this our marathon episode. Let's make it <laughs> two days long. Oh, we lose so many followers. <laughs> right. <laughs> we should try that. We should try to go a few hours and see what happens. Well, yeah, maybe we, next we, week, because next week we probably should talk about the fact that there it was a rate increase for singer-songwriters. 
Go ahead, get us uh, out of here. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the 9420 podcast. For everything that we spoke about, you can go to our website, which is 9420.com. That is the numbers 94 and the letters T W E N T Y. Until next time, we'll talk to y'all later. Want to say goodbye, Greg? Goodbye. <laughs>